My grandfather served in World War II. Spending time with him were the best memories of my life. I became a physician at VA because of my grandfather, so I can help others like him. I can't imagine working with better doctors or a more dedicated staff. I'm fulfilling my life's mission with the help of my team and thanks to these veterans. I'm proud to be a doctor at VA and proud to honor my grandfather every day. Search VA Careers to find out more. And happy Veterans Day to all of our former servicemen and women. November 11th is always a special day in our nation as we get to extend our gratitude to all of those who have served this great country. I also want to wish my fellow Marines a happy belated birthday. If you have even one Marine friend on Facebook, you probably saw a plethora of Marine Corps birthday posts as the Corps celebrated their 200 and 41st birthday yesterday. I am Timothy Lawson. I am your host for this week at VA. This is the fourth episode of the podcast and our official launch of the program. I want to thank everyone that has taken the time to listen to our first three episodes. If you have not yet heard them, visit blogs.va.gov or search This Week at VA in iTunes to check them out. We will soon be available on other platforms such as Stitcher, Google Play, Podcatcher, etc. Today's episode will recognize a Medal of Honor recipient and feature an interview with Secretary of Department of Veterans Affairs, Robert McDonald. Wrapping up the podcast will be information on an online benefits portal and our Veteran of the Day. Our first segment is an ode to Medal of Honor recipient, Michael Fitzmorris. Fitzmorris is an Army veteran out of South Dakota. Our team recently had the opportunity to talk with him about his experiences, but before we hear from him, I'd like to share his Medal of Honor citation. For conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity in action at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty, Specialist 4th Class Fitzmorris 3rd Platoon Troop D distinguished himself at Quezon. Specialist 4th Class Fitzmorris and three fellow soldiers were occupying a bunker when a company of North Vietnamese sappers infiltrated the area. At the onset of the attack, Specialist 4th Class Fitzmorris observed three explosive charges which had been thrown into the bunker by the enemy. Realizing the imminent danger to his comrades, and with complete disregard for his personal safety, he hurled two of the chargers out of the bunker. He then threw his flak vest in himself over the remaining charge. By this courageous act, he absorbed the blast and shielded his fellow soldiers. Although suffering from serious multiple wounds and partial loss of sight, he charged out of the bunker and engaged the enemy until his rifle was damaged by the blast of an enemy hand grenade. While in search for another weapon, Specialist 4th Class Fitzmores encountered and overcame an enemy sapper in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Having obtained another weapon, he returned to his original fighting position and inflicted additional casualties on the attacking enemy. Although seriously wounded, Specialist 4th Class Fitzmores refused to be medically evacuated, preferring to remain at his post. Specialist 4th Class Fitzmorris's extraordinary heroism in the action at the risk of his life contributed significantly to the successful defense of the position and resulting in saving the lives of a number of his fellow soldiers. These acts of heroism go above and beyond the call of duty, are in keeping with the highest traditions of the military service, and reflect great credit on Specialist 4th Class Fitzmorris and the U.S. Army. Here is Fitzmorris's personal account of his service. 
Well, my dad was in the Army and my uncles, and I didn't want to go to college, so me and three friends jumped in the car and came to Sioux Falls and joined up with the military. They didn't know I, I enlisted till I came home, and uh, Dad wasn't very happy, but I didn't even know what Vietnam was at the time. Just thought that's what you're, you should be doing. Give back a little bit to your country. And I think the farthest I had ever been before I went to the Army was over to Wisconsin for to the relative's house. But yep, the Army, then that was all different. I mean, basic was an eye-opener. And then, I mean, they kept pounding into, you know, learn what we're teaching because you're going to need it. And that's really true. Well, orders to Vietnam were common. And so they came and I was gone. I came into the, the second of 17th Cav. They were cooking steaks and they had a big trailer full of beer. And I thought, man, this is gonna be, this is gonna be the place. We were there to guard the airstrip. And I remember when we flew into Quezon, it was, I mean, I thought we were landing on the moon because it was just bomb craters and there was, I don't know what, looked like about the size of Bay, and I think they were cluster bombs laying all over. And we flew in there and then we had to dig in, make our bunkers, and, and then it was, everything was connected with trenches. It was about neck deep and you, life was good. We guarded the airstrip and but then for, for about three days, we were getting rockets in and blowing crap up. And the night of the 22nd, I was on put on guard duty, so I was out. I had just come back to, to go to bed, and I think Phil was going to go out, and the, the rockets and stuff started coming in, and God, it looked like it was like daylight out there, so I... Him and I were gonna truck out to the fighting position. No more got out and Quinella was blowed up all the crap. And so him and I got in the hole and then the satchel charged our bunker which buried the other guys in there. And then it went downhill from there. They were coming right through our third platoon. So it was Phil and me out there against the world. He shot some guys up before I, I never even seen them, and, or they'd have had me. And I seen somebody trucking up, and I thought, God, it must be one of ours. And he come up there, and boom, he throwed in something. And all I remember, one of them blew up, and I don't know, it was, a, he was inside, and I, for some reason, I went out, and there was, there was a whole bunch of them coming down to the trenches, so shot them up. And next thing I know, I'm laying up on top of the out of the hole there, and I blew up. From then on, I don't really remember. We was at about five o'clock. They came in and pulled us out. And I don't know. I ended up in Fitzsimmons. Can't regret any of it, though. It's just a part of your life. And I was discharged right out of Fitzsimmons in, I think it was April 7th of 72. And then I went went back home to Cavour, where, I, where my parents lived. And that was life, I guess. You get up and go to work, 
called me down to the office. We had a call from, from the White House, and they told me I, I was going to receive the Medal of Honor, and I never even knew I was put in for one. I joined the National Guard when I was discharged out of Fitzsimmons Hospital. I stayed in there for about 18 years, and then I got a job at the VA hospital and finished out to retirement. The feature interview this week is Army veteran Bob McDonald. McDonald graduated from West Point in 1975 and served for five years, primarily with 82nd Airborne Division. After separating from the Army in 1980, he joined Procter & Gamble and worked his way to become the president and CEO in 2009. He retired from Procter & Gamble in 2013, and on July 29, 2014, the U.S. Senate voted 97-0 to to confirm McDonald as the Secretary of Veterans Affairs. He was sworn in a day later. In this interview, Bob talks with us about joining the military, searching for his sense of purpose at Procter & Gamble, his calling to VA, veteran homelessness, outreach to veterans, and the growth he's seen in VA. I tried to approach this interview not as an employee at VA, but as an informed veteran looking for insight from VA's top office. I hope you enjoy. Secretary Robert A. McDonald will be the only time I say that name because I know you like to be addressed Bob, as Bob. Please, yeah. Thank you so much for joining me. This is the VA podcast, so it's only appropriate that we have the Secretary of Veteran Affairs on. So thank you so much for joining no, me. No, thank you, Tim. It's great to be with you. So we start every interview uh, with the decision to join the military, because that's what we all have in common, but it's still unique to everybody. Tell us about that experience for you. Well, my, my decision to join the military happened very early. Um, I enjoyed playing Army as a child, and uh, I, always, I always knew I wanted to go to West Point. I wanted to lead a life that was a bit different. Um, I wanted to free the people who were not living in free societies. And uh, so I first applied to West Point when I was in sixth grade. I was 11 years old. I wrote my congressman. And uh, fortunately, the congressman didn't discourage me. Of course, I couldn't, I couldn't uh, matriculate to West Point as an 11-year-old. But he said, uh, you know, take the test every year, and I will um, take your best score. And of course, I got into West Point my, my junior year and entered in, um, in the class in 1975. Uh, that congressman, uh, who I've thanked since then, was Donald Rumsfeld. Uh, but I, I thanked him for not discouraging a young person whose vision, whose aspiration was to go to West Point. Other common factor that we all have is getting out of the military. Mm -hmm. And again, it's a unique experience for every veteran. What was your transition like coming out of the Army? Well, it was during peacetime. So it was, uh, you know, I, was, I left the military in 1980. Um, I fortunately had a fantastic commander um, who saw the tapestry of work I did in the military and, and uh, awarded me the Meritorious Service Medal. While I was in the military, I had gotten an MBA at night and on the weekends, and so I uh, started interviewing toward the end of my time, uh, the end of my commitment, and um, joined the Procter & Gamble company. So I, I, I left the military effectively on June 4th, 1980, and I joined the Procter & Gamble Company on June 4th, 1980. Um, so it was relatively seamless. Last week's episode, Fred Wellman, ScoutCom's uh, CEO, we were talking about how difficult it is for veterans to maintain work when they first get out. So many, I think it's 45% of veterans will quit their first job out of the yeah. military within a year. Uh, you stayed and rose up the, the chain. 
how long was it until Procter & Gamble fulfilled that sense of purpose that veterans are seeking as soon as they get out of the military? It took a while. Uh, in fact, I struggled at the very beginning. I, I often say I was lost for the first two or three years of Procter & Gamble. I, I came in, I remember I came into my first brand group. It was a, I was on marketing of a new brand called Solo, which was a liquid laundry detergent. The brand ended up failing, by the way. Uh, so, you know, I, I thought my career was in question at that point. <laughs> um, but but um, I remember coming in and saying, well, where is the field manual that tells you how the files are arranged in the desk? And, of course, there isn't one in right. private industry, you know. And so it, it was really hard getting used to it. And uh, I worked for an individual who is a dear friend of mine, but he was significantly, significantly younger than I was and had, obviously, different leadership experience than I did. So the first few years were pretty tough. I think it was really only about the time I went overseas, uh, particularly when I uh, went to the Philippines in 1991. And I really saw our products making a difference in the lives of the people that use them. I mean, it sounds uh, quaint maybe for products like laundry detergent and razor blades and things like that, but I could see firsthand how we were improving the quality of life. And um, that really is what got me back to my purpose, which is really trying to help improve the lives of others. I'll ask you the same question when we start talking about you serving as SecVA. Uh, but as far as Procter & Gamble goes, what skill sets and discipline did you learn in the Army that contributed most to your success at Procter & Gamble? Well, certainly leadership. I mean, the, the great benefit of having um, time in the military service, and for me, time at West Point, was becoming a very deliberate uh, student of leadership, studying leadership, observing leadership. Uh, trying to get in touch with what your own leadership is, particularly when you're in a leadership position at West Point, you're leading peers. And uh, author authoritarian kind of leadership doesn't work when you're leading peers. And so that's a really good incubator to try things and, uh, and uh, you know, either succeed or fail. Um, and then certainly leading small units, like leading a platoon, um, a company, uh, those were all great opportunities to try different things out and, in a sense, form my own leadership philosophy, which I then took into industry with me. Something we've learned about so many veterans coming out of uh, the military is that many, in some way, will experience some sort of emotional crisis. For sure. Did you experience anything like Absolutely. that? Absolutely. You join the military because of your sense of purpose. And suddenly, when you leave the military, you feel like you've lost that sense of purpose. And while you try to redirect it to other things, you, you, know, you, you really want to be part of something that's much bigger than yourself. The camaraderie that you have in the military is hard to duplicate in the private sector because in the private sector, you don't face the in extremist circumstances that you do in the military. You're not jumping out of airplanes with parachutes. You're not on a battlefield. Um, and you miss those things. Uh, can you recreate them? Yeah, sure. I mean, every great leader of every great company wants to create that kind of collaboration, that kind of camaraderie, wants to create that kind of sense of purpose. But uh, I joined a company where if, if I wanted to talk about it in a negative way, I could say, you know, I was selling toilet paper. Uh, how does that improve lives? Well, I guess it does, but it, it just doesn't feel quite the ultimate aspirational mission that saving the world for democracy does. I would notice if I didn't have any toilet paper. 
Just yeah, I know. <laughs> well, it's pr- you're being very practical. Yeah. The same would be true of mothers and, and fathers with babies that need baby sure. that need pampers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. One of the things you find is is you as you go around the world, virtually the first product that the poorest consumer uses is laundry detergent. Oh, interesting. Or soap. Yeah. You know, they have a bar of soap or they have a laundry detergent. They wash their hair, they wash their body, they wash their clothes. That laundry detergent becomes very important to that family because when you walk out of that Nipah hut or wherever you are, Africa, Asia, Russia, wherever, your clothes are the billboard for your family. Family either takes care of each other, your, you know, whoever does the, the laundry, or they don't. And then after that, that initial soap, it's usually a differentiation of soap, maybe a shampoo, a laundry detergent, a bar soap. Other products are way down the line. Even today, laundry detergent is probably the fastest selling item in most grocery stores. Right. You're Good. talking about camaraderie. Camaraderie. And you know, you ask, I mean, 99% of veterans are going to tell you that the one thing they miss the most from the military is camaraderie. Absolutely. And one thing that I think so many of us miss, and this is not a slight to my, my colleagues now or the colleagues I've had afterwards, but one thing you can always rely on the military is no matter how much we like or dislike each other or agree or disagree, when it comes to mission accomplishment, that's something we're all moving towards and we will help each other accomplish that. It's the only reason you're there. Yeah. And that develops a bond of trust, which is very hard to duplicate. You know, I've I've been very fortunate in this job as secretary where the deputy secretary, Sloan Gibson, who I love and admire, is my West Point classmate. You know, we were seniors together at West Point. We both had roles in the, in the brigade, in the Corps of Cadets. We lived next to each other our senior year, the entire year. And uh, he's been my close personal friend for 40 years. And to be able to do something you love doing, which I, I love this role of serving veterans, but to be able to do it with somebody you love and somebody you trust, is is uh, really a blessing. The, the first time you and I met was actually, I think, two years ago at the Student Veterans of America conference. You spoke there and you gave a really great uh, almost town hall question and answer session where you were very right. direct with people. And I got the opportunity to ask you a question and you had only been in office for a few months at the time and I challenged the VA's willingness to do more outreach to veterans that are either skeptical of VA or don't want to get in front of other veterans that need it. Sure. Um, so I would like to readdress that question now, now that you have a couple of years under yeah. your belt Yeah, no, here. it's a big issue. It's a big issue. Um, you know, we measure how much veterans trust the VA, and it's an important measure to us. You know, are we satisfying veterans? Are we delivering on our promises to them? And uh, over the last few years, uh, the trust level's gone up by about 12 uh, index points. Nevertheless, we've got a cadre of veterans out there who may have had a bad experience with the VA three years ago, four years ago, five years ago. How do we get them to retry the VA now? Because it's a different VA. And I think veterans who are using us and veteran service organization members would say it is a different VA now. Um, and, and so one of the things we've got to do is get the word out it is different. Now, the good news is we've got, for example, more than a million more veterans using our health care system than we had in 2010. Uh, so that's great, particularly considering the total number of veterans has gone down from like 23.5 million to like 21 million. But we've got a million more using our system, and what we're seeing now is you know, we're having increases in the number of veterans coming in as we improve care. So as you improve care, the word gets out and more people come in. 
but we need to work harder at that outreach. And uh, that's one of the things we're doing is we, we've asking uh, our health administration to get out there and, and get people qualified. We're asking the Benefits Administration to get out there, don't wait for people to come to the office. Um, even our cemeteries, we're now uh, pre-clearing people to be buried in the cemetery, whereas what we used to do was wait till they died and then the family would have to apply. Well, we're trying to pre-clear people. We're trying to pre-clear people for their benefits, for their health care, by moving it upstream while they're still in the service. Um, we're trying uh, in, in, in the healthcare area, we're trying to get ahead of it by doing the CMP exam and other things while they're still in the service so there's no gap and that, that process, that service can be continuous when they get out. Yeah, I mean, since we're talking about veterans getting in, coming into the VA system, um, I think maybe the more challenging question that I had prepared for today is, you know, in the next few years, should America need to go to war again or go into some sort of campaign, is VA prepared to take another influx of combat veterans into their system? Well, we have to be. We have to be. But I tell you, we struggle because no matter um, the transformation I lead here, um, including things like by the end of the year having same-day access at all of our facilities for primary care, or, for example, if you're a new veteran, you can sign up for health care on the Internet or by making a phone call. I don't even need your signature any longer. Those are all important steps, but no matter what I do, I'm still relying on Congress to appropriate the money and pass the laws. Let me give you an example. Uh, we've added over 4 million new completed appointments in the last year versus the previous year for health care. That's great. How have we done that? We've added new square footage of space, new clinics. We've added more doctors, more nurses. Uh, we've expanded clinic hours in the evenings, on the weekends. But right now, we have 24 new clinics that have already been appropriated. Congress has already given the money for them, but they've not been authorized. So I need Congress to authorize those 24 new clinics to continue to expand services. So my job is I've got to tell them what the requirements are and then they've got to help me by appropriating the money and giving me the authorization to meet the veterans' needs. I can't do without Congress. You mentioned Congress. Something I've heard you reiterate multiple times throughout your career is you didn't expect this position to be so political. How does VA being a federal department and being tied up into so much politics, how does that benefit and how does that suffer at VA? Well, the good news is there's, there's tremendous unanimity in the country ostensibly in Congress uh, for veterans. Uh, it would be unpopular in the country today to be uh, not for veterans. That's very different than the time I served during the Vietnam era. And so that's the good thing. That's good. Everybody claims they're for it. What frankly makes me indignant is when veterans are used as political pawns. Uh, they're stood up at rallies behind candidates. Candidates talk about how much they care about veterans and then when you look at their voting record or you look at the fact that they may have had medical deferments during Vietnam or some other uh, thing to escape service you begin to wonder and, and oftentimes the criticism I find sometimes oftentimes comes from members of Congress who have never served in the military we've got to find a way to turn this positive feeling into action that's why we gave Congress about 100 different pieces of legislation that we need for veterans, 40 of which were new this year. But, you know, we've only been able to get a few through. So I've got to find a way to turn 
this good feeling for veterans into legislation that gets passed. It's a lot of, it's a lot of stuff that both sides of the aisle agree on. We just can't get it through the Congress. While I was researching uh, for this podcast, I found um, a PDF at Procter & Gamble titled What I Believe In, mm -hmm. uh, which was 10 leadership principles that you believe in. Right. Um, and the 10th one is the true test of a leader is the performance of the organization when they are absent or after they depart. Yeah, when the leader's not there. Right. Presuming you're stepping out in January, what kind of legacy do you believe you'll leave here at VA and how will we be measuring your leadership a year from now? Well, the way I, the way I think we ought to measure um, the leadership of the VA is, is based on outcomes for veterans. Have we improved the care for veterans? Uh, have, have we had more uh, medical, completed medical appointments? Have we continued to build capabilities so that more veterans can come into the system? Are we dealing with the disability claim backlog? You know, we've, we've reduced it by 90%. Um, have we ended veteran homelessness? We haven't ended it, but it's down 50%. Uh, and the last year was the year of the biggest decline, 17% nationally. Um, but, you know, we've got more to do. And if, if you measure me on anything, it would be hopefully transforming this organization to put the veteran at the center of everything we do, to look at every issue through the lens of the veteran, not through the lens of the bureaucracy. Uh, that's what we've been trying to do. Going back to that SVA conference, uh, Vice President Joe Biden also spoke at that, uh, that yeah, conference. Yeah, very inspiring speech. Yeah, it was, it was one of the better uh, speeches that I had heard throughout this entire administration. But one thing that stood out to me, and I remembered it as soon as uh, we confirmed this interview, was he commented that, that this job, the Secretary of Veterans Affairs, was not one anyone in their right mind would take. But yet you took it. And, it, and you were confirmed unanimously in Congress. What is it about this organization and this position that felt so right for you? Well, it's all about purpose. You know, the opportunity to help my brother and sister veterans and to take everything I had learned, whether at West Point or in the Army or 33 years serving 5 billion consumers on the planet every single day at Procter & Gamble, take all of that knowledge and bring it to serve, in my opinion, the most important customer, veterans, those who have already earned the right to be served through their service, through their sacrifice. Um, I, I tend to be a relatively devout person, and um, when I got the call from the White House, I said, this is exactly what I uh, would have expected. This is God's plan. He's, he's, he's prepared me in all these different positions, whether it was West Point, the Army, uh, Procter & Gamble, all these different countries, to now take everything I've learned and bring it to bear for the most important people on the planet, which are the veterans who have preserved the freedom of this country. I don't know what's going to happen on Tuesday. Uh, I, I guess, don't either. I guess just say, I don't know. I, at the time of this recording, we don't know what's happening on Tuesday. I don't know what happens uh, in January, but I know that sense of purpose isn't going to leave just because um, when you leave this office. No, it never does. It never does. Have you thought about how you're going to fulfill that, either for yourself or continuing your service to veterans? You know, I, I, I really haven't thought about that, Tim, and the reason I haven't is I don't want to get distracted from getting as much done here as I can. Um, so we are, you know, we've got our heads down. President Obama has talked with us about, you know, running through the tape. We are all, that's an old expression, by the way, but we are all running through the tape to try to get as much done as we can. We, we committed to 
every one of our facilities having uh, same-day access for primary care. We have about 150, 160 facilities. We're only at about 80 or 90 now. So we've got work to do, and I want to make sure we get that work done. I don't want to be distracted uh, by any opportunities in the future. There'll sure. be time for that. Plus, uh, my, my family may want to meet me again, and uh, <laughs> I probably could use a rest. Sure. I saw that what I believe in list of leadership traits cited on there with Seven Habits of Highly Productive People, which is a very popular Yeah, Stephen uh, Covey. Book. Great book. Here at VA, as Secretary of Veteran Affairs, what habits or routines have you implemented here to ensure that your time is used most efficiently here? I tend to be a relatively efficient person. One of the things I've, uh, I've done here, it used to be that uh, the Secretary would come in a meeting and you'd have a long presentation to the Secretary. What I like to do is have people provide me uh, something to read before I get into the meeting, already have coalesced my thoughts, and then use the time in the meeting to have a discussion about what we need to do. Um, that caught people by surprise, I think, a little bit in the beginning, and I think the pace at which we moved in the beginning caught people by surprise. But um, I think now we're becoming more and more comfortable to it, so we can do things more quickly, and we don't have to be as uh, pedantic about briefings and, and staff work and all the things that take a lot of time. Um, I can remember when, when I had an issue with a member of Congress, our organization wanted to do a lot of staff work, and I said, no, I'm just going to pick up the phone and call the person, which I did. Or one time we were over on Capitol Hill, and I wanted to go see the chairman of our House committee, Jeff Miller, and uh, we didn't have an appointment. I just walked in his office. But uh, business operates at the speed. I mean, if somebody needs something urgently from our medical system, we should be able to provide it. And uh, business, we as a business need to operate at that speed uh, to serve veterans, to better serve veterans. I think it was a couple years ago, uh, you helped do a point in time survey in Los Angeles. I've, well, I've done it every year now in okay. Los Angeles, last two years. Tell me about that experience. When I walk by uh, a veteran on the street, I see their sign and I resonate with them a little bit knowing that I came close to homelessness, I have friends that came close to it. As the person who heads the office of the organization meant to take care of them, how does your emotions re respond to seeing those, those yeah. signs and those people? My, my worst nightmare is being on the street with a homeless person lifting up that blue tarp and seeing somebody I served with. That would be my worst, my worst nightmare. There's nothing more important that we're doing than eradicating veteran homelessness. The good news is we've made progress. We're down 47% since 2010. We dropped it 17% in last year. We dropped it over 30% in Los Angeles in the last year, which is the location of the biggest cohort of homeless people. We know how to do it. We know the strategy is housing first. We know getting them the wraparound care. We've hired more caseworkers um, to do it. So we, we know what we're doing. And, and one of the things I'm excited about is around Veterans Day this year, we're doing something called um, Project Reveille, which is going to be stand downs in multiple cities around the country simultaneously that will result at the end of the day with the homeless person actually in a home, in a shelter, uh, getting the care they need. So there's, there's just simply nothing more important than we can do than to eliminate homelessness. Those point in time counts are tough. Yeah, They're really tough because 
I've had cases in Los Angeles where I've asked people, you know, if they're a veteran, and they say yes, and I discover they're not. You know, um, so it's they're they're really tough. They're really tough, and your heart goes out to every single person. You know, one of the things that creates homelessness is a gap between military service and becoming a veteran and getting your VA disability claims handled or or health care, and so. By moving upstream with the Department of Defense and making sure veterans service members get signed up early, even before they become veterans, becomes critically important. We don't want that gap. Uh, the other thing that becomes an indicator of homelessness is when a veteran gets involved with the judicial system, and it might be result in incarceration. So veteran treatment courts. You know, we now have over 400 veteran treatment courts in the country. Five years ago, we had zero. Um, veteran treatment courts are, are a great thing where the veteran working with the judge and the prosecutor gets the caseworker from the VA, gets the wraparound services, and if they stay on the program, they don't go to jail. And uh, that's an off-ramp for homelessness. So these are the kinds of things we're trying to do to make sure we reduce the number of homeless, but we also don't add to it. One of the biggest struggles that, and this sort of relates to one of the first questions on outreach, one of the struggles that a lot of veterans have is they don't, the concept of the VA, whether they're open to it or not, seems so overwhelming. Yeah. Even myself, an employee of VA, I still wouldn't know where to start. How have you, over the couple of years, how have you seen the, the push of the information in helping the veteran understand the process of the things they need to go through. You know, when you first came on board versus where we are now, how yeah. have you seen that, that improve? Well, first thing we did was we trained every employee in what is the VA, because oftentimes in the past, if you went to a person in the hospital administration, they wouldn't know anything about benefits, wouldn't know who to connect you to. Um, and so we've, we, we put together a training course called VA 101, that every new employee gets trained and every employee gets trained in so people will know how to direct people. Secondly, we've gone from a myriad of websites uh, that all require different usernames and passwords to one called vets.gov. So I would encourage every listener to go to vets.gov. That's a great place to start. It's a great place to plug in. We're building capability in that. We've had a, a plethora of 1-800 numbers. We're going to one that we'll be launching uh, after Veterans Day. Um, you can now uh, sign up for healthcare online or by phone. You don't have to sign any paperwork. So we're always trying to make it easier for people to get connected and uh, through those connections um, get into the system. Uh, you may recall in September of 2014 at my first national press conference, I gave out my cell phone number and my email address. So I still get calls from veterans every day. I still get emails from veterans every day. Uh, I answer them or a team of people I have that work with me answer them. Um, so if anybody has trouble getting connected, the last resort is just email me, uh, which is easy, bob.mcdonald at va.gov. It's my, my name. Yeah. I've actually, on one occasion, um, managing the social managing the Twitter handle, there was someone who was upset that they couldn't, none of the numbers uh, was, were working for them. Uh, and I actually DM'd them saying, this is Bob McDonald's number, the secretary of VA, someone will respond to your, your query. And they never responded back to me, which usually means that they got what they were looking for. Yeah, well, uh, in the beginning, I would get over 100 yeah. uh, contacts a day, always asking for help. Today. I now get 
less than that, significantly less than that, and about a third or, two, or a third to a half on any given day are thank you for helping me. Yeah. Um, you know, I got a, I got I got an email last night from a, a gentleman who um, was living in Thailand. He had served in Vietnam in the Air Force, and he he was coming back to the United States. He wanted to sign up for VA healthcare. Uh, we got him connected immediately. Uh, we discovered he had stage four cancer. Wow. Uh, we immediately got him signed up for his benefits in case something were to happen um, because he suffered from Agent Orange exposure. Um, and we got him the health care he needed. And he, he wrote me last night uh, just saying how much he appreciated uh, everything that we did for him and how quickly we did it. Those, those are the emails, those are the phone calls that make what we do every day worthwhile. Do you think the VA will ever get to a place where the good stories will outweigh the bad and the public perception will be that the VA is effective? Oh, there's no, there's no doubt in my mind. Um, I see some of that turning right now. Um, if you look at the unanimity that we've found amongst the veteran service organizations we've been working with, um, uh, some of the members of Congress, there's always, as I said earlier, there's always an opposition party and there's always ideologues in that opposition party that are more about their next election and criticizing the party that's in power versus trying to be part of the solution. But I, I see that turning already. And as I said, the numbers suggest uh, the trust in the VA has gone up 12 index points. So the numbers suggest that it's happening as well. I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Um, oh, it's it great to talk to you. Yeah, too. absolutely. Just as you're crossing the tape, as, uh, as, you, as you said earlier, running through the tape, I'm sorry. Yeah. What is in the forefront? What are you trying to close out? What are you trying to accomplish? What, what are you hoping to leave behind in your legacy? Well, it goes back, it goes back to, your, um, to your comment about uh, my 10th leadership belief of the how the organization performs when you're not there. My, my friend Jim Collins, who I think is one of the best business authors uh, in the world, uh, writes about leadership as building a clock, not telling time. I hope what I've done here so far is built a clock and that that clock will continue to run so other people can tell time. What that means is, um, is caring for veterans, one veteran at a time. And hopefully, if you do that one veteran at a time, by the time you finish, you'll be up to uh, about uh, 21 million. What I'm trying to do, and what I'm trying to get every VA employee to do, is to recognize every single day we have the blessing, we have the opportunity to make a difference for at least one person. And when we go home at night, quality of our day is measured in the number of people that we have helped or the number of people we've assisted. And hopefully over all the employees of the VA, over 300,000, uh, all the locations and all the time we're together, you know, will we'll make a big difference. Secretary McDonald, thank you so thank much you, for, for joining me here. Great to be with here. you. Most importantly, thank you for your service to our country, both in the Army and, and as Secretary of Veterans Affairs well, currently. Thank you for yours in the Marine Corps. Yeah, you're welcome. It was my you, pleasure. Tim. Thank you. We grew up together. We believed in something bigger than ourselves. The military took me to one side of the world and her to the other. And even though she was always the strong one, when we caught up years later, I found out she had fallen on some hard times. It was her call to make, but doing it together made all the difference. As a police officer, when I see homeless vets on my route, I always think to myself, we both swore an oath to protect our way of life, to protect our community. With VA's hotline for homeless vets, I can get them connected with help. 
help to get them back on their feet again. VA's round-the-clock hotline can put veterans who are homeless in touch with the resources and support they earned through their military service. You have the power to help a veteran facing homelessness. Go to va.gov homeless to print your wallet cards. For veterans who are homeless or on the brink of homelessness, call 877-424-3838. Secretary McDonald mentioned the website Vets.gov. Vets.gov enables veterans to discover, apply for, track, and manage the benefits they have earned and is becoming VA's single, public-facing, transactional website. Vets.gov is still a work in progress and is being developed incrementally to ensure that feedback from veterans drives the design and features of the site. Vets.gov features resources such as a GI Bill comparison tool, a facility locator, and links to information on disability benefits, education benefits, employment services, and healthcare. Every day, we spotlight a unique veteran as Veteran of the Day. Today, being Veterans Day, we couldn't choose just one. So, on behalf of the Department of Veterans Affairs, I would like to thank each and every one of our military veterans for their service and honor you all as Veteran of the Day. That's it for the Veterans Day podcast. I want to thank you all for listening. I know there are a lot of options out there for entertainment, so I appreciate you spending your time with me. If you have any feedback or questions you'd like to have answered on the show, please tweet them to us using hashtag VA podcast or emailing us at newmedia at va.gov. Be sure to visit facebook.com slash veterans affairs for more stories from our community. I'm Timothy Lawson, signing off.